Okay, and welcome back to On the Shelf. Today we have a very special episode that we are so excited to share with you today. Another author interview. This is our fourth of five that we're doing this summer. And this is instead of our normal once-week format, which you're probably more familiar with. But have no fear, we're getting back to that format later this month. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on today's author, Lily Lanoff, her work, and while you're at it, you can check out last month's interviews with Abigail Hare, Camille Aubrey, and Sarah Priscus. All of these are available wherever you listen to podcasts, which means they're on the platform you're listening to this on right now. But those are tales for another day. On to the main event. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another author interview. Um, we are just so, so excited um, we have someone, we have a very special guest, as it is an author interview, um, but yeah, we're just so excited, so I will let, uh, I'll just let her introduce herself, um, and we can get right into it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm Lily Lanoff. I'm the author of One for All, which is a gender-bent reimagining of The Three Musketeers with a main character with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's full of dueling and ball gowns and found family and fierce sisterhood. I'm also a fencer and fencing coach, and I'm the founder of, of Disabled Kidlet Writers, which is a group for uh, kidlet writers who are disabled of at, at any stage of their careers. And we have over 450 members now, which is very exciting. Uh, yes, and thank you again so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're so excited to have you. Uh, we have so much fun doing these. Um, yeah, so our first question we like to do every time. It's just a very, it's just a fun icebreaker. And you're just going to say like the first answer that pops in your head, but it's what kind of plate are you? I think I would be a cheese plate. Okay. Because it contains cheese. Yeah. And I love cheese. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like as, as somebody who like, I've been gluten- free for like the past three or four years not by choice but uh the only thing that has gotten me through it has been the fact that I can still eat cheese like cheese has not been taken from me <laughs> um so a little more into like your general writing questions and general mm -hmm. like book questions what was the main inspiration for your book right so one for all had a very strange inspiration story mostly because uh I feel like I always have to explain to folks who aren't writers uh that we don't just have light bulb moments I mean there's a lot of crying over blank word documents or Scrivener or whatever application word processor you use but as far as one for all was concerned the exact opposite happened in that I was uh, on submission with another book to publishers um, with my agents that uh, eventually didn't sell on submission that had a cast of almost entirely disabled characters and I was on the phone with my agents and we were talking about what I wanted my next project to be and I can't remember who brought up the idea of a retelling or the word retelling but as soon as that word was mentioned the Three Musketeers immediately popped into my head and I actually had to say, I'm sorry, I have to hang up the phone. And I opened a notebook. I wrote one for all at the top and I started writing. And 
I've never had an experience like that before. I'm not sure I'll ever have it again. And I think that even though it felt very quick in that moment, I've been a fencer since I was eight, nine years old. And when we were at summer camps, fencing summer camps, we would watch movies with sword fighting and fencing in them at lunchtime, uh, like The Princess Bride and The Man in the Iron Mask, which was my first um, introduction to The Three Musketeers. And I remember loving those movies, but wondering why none of the women and girls had swords in them. And I think that was kind of on the back burner in my brain for a very long time. And it just so happened to show itself in that moment. So even though it felt very quick, I'm sure it was something that has been many years in the making in the back of my brain. Um, as far as uh, the other elements of One for All, I, I knew uh, after around two paragraphs that Tanya was going to have the same chronic illness as me. I didn't know at first when I started writing, uh, but something felt very inauthentic as I was writing the dual scenes and I couldn't figure out why. And I realized that it was because almost the entirety of my time as a fencer, as a competitive fencer has been while I've been chronically ill. So it's very hard for me to dissociate the two of them in my mind and to take away the perspective of dizziness and all the other things that come with POTS. It's difficult to take that away when I'm writing about fencing because that's just so ingrained into my experience as a fencer. So Tanya was not initially chronically ill, but she became chronically after, ill after two paragraphs. And I think that's probably when the real heart of One for All and the core of One for All took shape and took form. So Miss Lily, with all like the current um, fairy tale or classic retellings, how did you make sure that your book One for All stood out um, against all the other ones? So it's interesting because I was writing One for All, gosh, I started in 2016, I think. So that was kind of right around the time that retellings were really starting to take off. I mean, there have always been certain stories that have been retold over and over and over again because they work really well. I'm thinking specifically of Cinderella. There are a lot of Cinderella retellings. Now, to be fair, Ash is like the original, like, you know, YA Cinderella retelling, which also like, I think, you know, paved the way for so many retellings written by marginalized creators starring marginalized characters. But um, I, I don't think that retellings were, at least in YA, were the hugest part were a huge part of the market the way that they are now um when I started writing one for all I could be wrong because I was also a junior in college at the time and I was so weighted down by all my readings for my for my English seminars and trying to figure out how to use excel so I could pass my you know math requirement econ class uh so perhaps they had a bigger market share than I remember. But um, when I started writing One for All, I, I knew that I wanted, I really just wanted to write it authentically. And uh, I think that that came from the fact that as a fencer, one of my biggest pet peeves as a reader is when I read scenes that are not accurate in terms of dual scenes and fencing scenes. And uh, there's just so many. And 
it got to the point where I actually had a short-lived hashtag, which was Fencing Friday, which pretty much amounted to me to try it, teaching other writers how to write about fencing and write about sword fighting and fights in general, um, which is actually how I met my friend Tracy Dion, who wrote with Legendborn, and is how I ended up being the fight consultant for the series. Uh, but um, I knew that I wanted to write one for all and have accurate fencing scenes. That was, I guess, my one thing. I was like, it'll stand out in the market because it has accurate fencing scenes. No, no offense to other writers. There are some very good fencing scenes now. Like Tracy's fight scenes are very good. Um, but I also knew that uh, when, when I figured out that Tanya was going to be chronically ill and had POTS, I think that that automatically made it unique in a way because one for all, as far as we know, is the first book published by a major publisher with a main character with Pop syndrome. And that is scary and alarming for a number of reasons, mostly because there are millions of people in the United States alone with POTS. And the idea that there's no other book besides one for all uh, that exists on bookshelves uh, there are some really great self-published authors who are doing great work but as a teenager I was going to my school library and I didn't really have access to self-published books in the way that teenagers do now because now there are ebooks ebooks are so much more prevalent and kindle is so much more prevalent um so I knew that once I was going to write one for all about a character with pots I knew that it would stand out in the market if it could get into the market and that's a whole entire another story in terms of you know the obstacles faced in trying to get a book with a chronically ill main character in a fantasy historical adventure genre actually on bookshelves yeah I'm so glad that it made it through that is it is fantastic um to kind of continue with the idea of um, like connecting to um, retelling, mm -hmm. um, like how did you want your characters to compare to um, what you saw in the Three Musketeers? Like, were there any parallels that you really, really wanted them to see or have like fully stand out? Right. So I think that this is, I, I find this question really interesting because I think that I've heard from a certain portion of readers that don't feel like it's necessarily a retelling or reimagining and more of a spinoff and I think it's difficult because unlike other stories that are necessarily being retold and written the three musketeers is about a group of men who are in their 20s 30s and 40s I'm not, I, I never wanted to put the exact personalities of 20 and 30 and 40 year old men into teenage girls characters because I thought that would be a bit strange and, and uh, but I wanted to still remain true to Dumas and what he was attempting and the nuances that he portrayed. So one of the ways that I did that was I abstracted a lot of character traits. So I think the best example for that is Portia. So Porthos in the original is known for being really lascivious um, and, you know, uh, 
dates a lot of women and is very hungry. And Portia is hungry in a metaphorical sense. Like she is hungry for women's rights. She is hungry for all these things that she cannot have. And she's ferocious in what she's willing to do and how far she's willing to go in order to get those things. So I wanted to create those parallels without it being too obvious because I feel like that the most successful retellings and reimaginings are ones that don't just pick up the characters and then put them in a different space. They have more nuance and the characters are able to go in different places. And quite frankly, I mean, I don't know why anybody would want to read a retelling of The Three Musketeers that was the same exact characters just put in a different place. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so kind of in a similar vein, if you were to write um, another book in kind of this spinoff retelling kind of universe you've created mm -hmm. for yourself, um, is there any, is there any like specific part of like the musketeer mythos or like a story that you would like to kind of try your hand at and see kind of how your characters would go through those like events well see this is this is a difficult question because while one for all sold is a standalone i would be lying if i said i didn't have a sequel title like a sequel synopsis a plan chapter so it's it's more about will my publisher buy by the by the sequel because I would really love to have a chance to write it uh and I can tell you kind of generally a general sense of what I would like to do with that book which is I think that one of the reasons why I was so interested in writing about the time period after La Fronde after the French Civil Wars and before Versailles is because there's it's not a time period that's actually written about a lot or shown a lot in tv shows because to be fair versailles is really interesting and sparkly and outrageous and i love watching those shows and reading those books and it's great and lafronde i mean i think that uh it it's a period of such turmoil and betrayal and so much intrigue and i and i and there was also a lot of writing about that. So I wanted to write into the space in between those. But we are coming up on the Versailles era kind of at towards the end. And uh, the king is around, I think, 1718. So I would he would play a larger role in the second book. Um, and the second book would be, uh, I think, one of the reasons why I would like to write that book the most is because uh, so much of Tanya's journey in One for All is learning how to love herself and overcoming self internalized ableism and overcoming the ableism that has been pushed upon her by society. And One for All ends on a moment of disabled joy. And I think that it would be really wonderful to be able to start a book on a moment of disabled joy and show her possibly pursuing a healthy and non-toxic relationship for the first time and what that would be like and I you know I'm trying not to get into spoilers but there's also a fan favorite couple that I would love to write more about and I also I I, I want Taya to have her story told more because I think that 
you know, it's so difficult in a book when it's so, it's so short and I had to cut so much of one for all before it finally hit shelves. There's so much more to the other girls' stories that I would like to have a chance to tell. Um, and I also think in terms of the musketeer mythos, I, I want to have the opportunity to show how strong the girls are as a unit uh, and how it's not the musketeers that necessarily has to bring them together anymore. It's, it's them as a, as a whole, as a total. And that's as much as I can say without going into spoiler territory. <laughs> I agree with that. That sounds great. Thank also, you. I love like, you worked on Legendborn because I adored Legendborn. Like that was such a good book. Um, but anyways, onto the question. What was your favorite scene that you wrote or like your favorite moment or what has stuck with you since you wrote One for All? It's hard because I think that my favorites, the moment that immediately comes to my mind is one that's a very big spoiler, which is the final dual showdown scene. Uh, and that scene, because I wrote One for All out of chronological order, it was the second scene that I wrote in my draft and it's stayed pretty much the same. It's, it's been cut down a lot, but it's stayed pretty much the same. And I think that that scene was very much my guiding compass because there are some, there are, One for All has a lot of themes that are very visible on the surface in terms of uh, overcoming internalized ableism and finding your own place in a world that tells you that you don't have a place and all these different things. But One for All is also very much a book about consent and about relationships that aren't necessarily visibly toxic or abusive, but when you peel back layers, more and more is revealed. Uh, and I used that final scene kind of as my guiding compass in order to get to the point where I could actually unpack uh, a lot of that because I think that um, I want to see more healthy relationships portrayed in YA um, and there are a lot of authors who are doing it really well but I, I also I think that there's too much behavior that's excused <laughs> in a book in, in books and I want I want uh, teenage readers to know that they should be holding their partners to higher standards. Uh, and I guess that One for All was a, very much a manifestation of my thoughts on that. Um, I also just loved writing all the dual scenes because I love writing fight scenes. And I, it's funny because I hear a lot of writers talk about how they will skip over writing fight scenes and come back to them, but then they skip ahead to write the kiss scenes. I'm like, no, I'm skipping the kiss scenes. I'm like, I'll, I'll write the dual scenes now. I'll come back to write the kiss scenes later. Um, writing about fencing is so much fun for me because I get to use this huge knowledge base uh, and experience base that I that I have that um, that I love talking about and I love writing about. Um, and I think that fight scenes are such an incredible way to develop character and to build tone and to build world. And um, I, I love how challenging they are uh, because they are challenging, but they're also so much fun. So what is your comfort TV show or movie or possibly even book? 
Okay, Legendborn is my comfort book. <laughs> um, I go back to read Legendborn all the time. Um, I think that uh, what other books? I love Dealing with Dragons was one of my favorite books when I was little, which I loved. Um, and I just I I told my I read my first Emily Henry novel <laughs> this week, and I told myself I wasn't going to read all of them, and now I've read all of them. Oops. Um. But I, those have been really fun. Um, but as far as TV shows, uh, I got into watching The Great British Bake Off in, but the season's out of order <laughs> um, back during a lockdown because I felt like that <laughs> the world has always been a traumatic place. And that's not to, you know I, I I don't mean to downplay that but my gosh that that 27 2016 2017 2018 2019 those were that, that was not great so what I started doing was I started with the most recent great British bake-off season and then I went backwards so it was kind of just tricking my mind into going oh look yes remember when all this wasn't happening this is great um so I watched them backwards and that was very soothing I also will watch I just rewatched uh Schitt's Creek again um I am going I'm supposed to watch Tracy told me I need to watch Paper Girls so I'm watching I'm going to watch Paper Girls next um I also really love some of the seasons of Parks and Rec and oh gosh there's so many different ones as far as movies are concerned concerned I love Stardust so much Stardust has my whole heart. So it is up. Um, and the Princess Bride, which I adore. And I have seen so many times that I could probably quote the entire movie. And there are so many Princess Bride references in one for all. It's kind of it's kind of silly. I don't know how I managed to get them all in there without my editor taking them away. But those are that's a very varied and long list. I apologize. <laughs> long tangent list no that's such a good list I like I saw the princess bride for the first time maybe like three or four years ago and I loved it I didn't think I was gonna like it it was so good um okay so this one's a kind of a two-part question what would you say is the best writing advice that you've ever received and what advice would you give to your younger self or any new writers um that you wish you had known back then I think that uh, it's hard for me to think because I, I went to school for writing and I went to so many programs for writing that it's hard for me to remember all the different pieces of writing advice that I've gotten and try to pick out one. But one really recent piece of writing advice that I actually saw on Twitter was about being kind to yourself as a writer and which which. I've heard in many different iterations and I've told people in other iterations, but I think it is really important to be kind to yourself as a writer. Um, also to save everything, because I think that it's really tempting to just delete swaths of text, especially when you're writing on Word or on Scrivener, but definitely save everything that you ever write because you will go back to it and you can, you know, just take pieces that are good and then put them into other books and that's fine um the piece of advice that 
I tell everybody, but especially young writers, is don't listen to any advice. <laughs> uh, because I think that a lot of a lot of writing advice that is popular is incredibly prescriptive. And I think that everybody has a different process to their writing. And I don't think that anybody should feel the need to change that process in order to try to fit in with other people's processes. Uh, I also really, really, really hate the piece of advice that you have to write every day to call yourself a writer because it's ableist and classist and so many other ists. It's, it's, and there's no benefit to gatekeeping writing at all. Uh, so pretty much just, you know, you're still a writer, even if you're writing once a week, once a month, it's, it's still, you're the person who gets to decide whether or not you call yourself a writer. It's not up to anybody else. Yeah, that that's some very good advice slash non-advice of like, yeah. <laughs> um, so going outside of like the writing world, recently you posted an open letter about what's going on in like competitive fencing right now. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about that. Um, yeah, sure. So bear with me because it's going to sound really complicated at first, because I think that all competitive sports at a certain level are like I have a friend an old friend who uh is really into curling and there's some kind of curling controversy going on with certain state club levels of curling and I don't understand anything that's going on so uh, my explanation of fencing could be on par with that but I'm gonna try so pretty much fencing uh it, there's a lot more than what you see every four years at the Olympics. Um, there's a competitive fencing cycle. So there are international events and then there are national events in the U.S., which are run by um, USA Fencing. There big events, which usually happen every month, are North American Cups. Uh, then there's Junior Olympics, which usually happens in February, and then a national tour, nationals, or which are, I think they call now the July Challenge, um, is in July, fittingly enough. Uh, and those events are how you gain national point rankings. Uh, and there are other events that you can gain point rankings at when you're a younger fencer, so when you're 10, 12, 14. Uh, but for adults, those are the only, really the only national level events that you can go to. Now, this is where things get a bit complicated. There's a rating system when it comes to fencing, and you can only attend certain national events if you have a certain rating. Events like Women's Saber, which is what I fence, I fence Saber, uh, have only been around for a short period of time because, and this is an actual thing, people thought that women were too fragile to fence saber. So it was not fenced at a competitive level until the 2000s. Now, there are a whole lot of things wrong with this. But um, because of that, we haven't had as much time to build up events where you can gain ratings at. 
So regional events that will allow you to go to national tournaments. Uh, and recently, uh, USA Fencing announced that they've pretty much done away with all the national events that don't require a ranking for adults. So that means that anybody who doesn't have above um, a certain level ranking, they're pretty much shut out of national competitions for at least the next 11 months. We don't really know how much longer it's going to go on. USA Fencing hasn't really told us what the event schedule is at nationals, so it could be permanent. Uh, and for people like me who are chronically ill, who couldn't compete during the pandemic, uh, who had their ratings drop, I'm now shut out of national competitions. I've been a competitive fencer since I was nine, 10 years old. So I'm going on what, 16 years of comp um, competitive fencing, 17 years of competitive fencing. I was a qualifier for qualifier for NCAA championships. I've now a coach and I'm shut out of the sport that I love, which is heartbreaking. Um, it also disproportionately impacts people who took time off to start families or took time off because they were trying, they had to find other forms of work during the pandemic or really any reason why people might have needed to take time off. Um, so what we're doing right now is I penned an open letter and um, my friend Eliza Mace, who's another fencer who's been impacted by this, she does a lot of data science and has figured out that well over a thousand people are going to be shut out of competitive fencing um, based upon this decision. So uh, we're trying to pull together a lot of signatures to send off to USA Fencing in hopes that they will reconsider the decision. Um, and obviously the community is not a monolith and there are a lot of different perspectives. But for the most part, people seem to be incredibly supportive of our open letter and don't really understand the decision making because it does seem to alienate everybody between the ages of 22 and 40 because there's veterans fencing once you reach the age of 40. But it does seem to alienate everybody between the ages of 22 and 40 who aren't competing at international events. Did that make sense? Did that make sense? Okay. Um, yes, that made sense. Thank yeah, you. Pretty much, pretty much it's just bad because disabled and chronically ill athletes aren't being taken into consideration. Athletes who have who work multiple jobs aren't being taken into consideration. Athletes pretty much who between the ages of 20 and 40 who cannot make fencing their entire existence are not being taken into consideration. And that's the problem that we have right now. Man, I hope, hope USA Fencing listens. I hope they hear the feedback. I hope they do something. I hope so too, because like I can't claim like a lot, but I mean, I and I and I love the sweet messages that I get from parents who have been like, I read your book, and now my daughter is. I signed my daughter up for fencing classes. Like USA Fencing, I am making you money. <laughs> Please let me fence. <laughs> uh, so, and and I also I also. It's also sad because I don't want, you know, younger fencers to think that they're, they just will be shut out of the sport that they love once they graduate college. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very, it's just, 
I guess it's it's hard. It's hard to get you know teenagers excited about fencing um, if this is what awaits them. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, our last question, bit of a lighter <laughs> note. Um, do you have a local bookstore that you want to highlight for where you can buy one for all? Yes, um, East City Bookshop is where I had my uh, had one for all's launch. And I have signed copies selling through there. Right now, I think there might only be one signed copy left and I need to go back to sign more copies, but they will ship signed copies uh, to, I think they'll ship anyway. Um, But yep, uh, they're an incredible but independent bookstore and they do such great work uh, in the DC area. And so I would highly recommend buying one for all from there. Um, you can also pre-order uh, the one for all paperback from there, which will be out in 2023. Sorry, I was trying to remember the year. It's been, oh gosh, it's been a rough few years. I can't even tell what year it is anymore. Well, thank you very much. Um, I believe that bookstore, that's one of the links you sent me and that will go in the show notes. So you can buy one for all through that. Um, That is all the questions we have for you. So we're just going to do wind down our little outro thing. Um, But thank you so much for being here. This has been very enlightening. I loved one for all a lot. Um, You know, girls with swords is always a cool, always cool in books. But yeah, just thank you so much for spending part of your Sunday to be here with us. Um, Thank you for anyone who is listening. And I really highly recommend you go out and read One for All Yourself because the scene she's talking about, it's it's pretty epic. Um, (laughs) um, But yeah, just thank you for anyone listening. Um, We're not going to have another episode next week because we're going to try to get back into our weekly schedule and it's going to be our planning meeting. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, But we're going to be back on the 21st with another author interview. So that's exciting, at least for me. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, just thank you for anyone listening. Support Lily Lanoff and her wonderful book. Um, And if you ever want to come back, you're always welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully I'll be back. Hopefully I'll be back with the new book sooner rather than later. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so thank you, everybody. I hope you have a wonderful day and we'll be back soon with more fun book stuff. But yes. (laughs) Make sure to listen to our other episodes and stay tuned for this month's episode all about Malibu Rising. We are doing another deep dive back into the wonderful world of Taylor Jenkins Reid. For more information on Lily's open letter about U.S. fencing, you can find that, as always, in the show notes and where you can buy your very own copy of One for All. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Honora Quinn, and this is On the Shelf.